to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spasciano, joined, as always, by the player himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Yeah, Dan, I'm coming to you from uh, Playa's Ark. It was nasty outside today, man. I thought the house was going to blow down. Yeah, you know, we're hitting this a big storm up here, too. I mean, I can literally feel the house shaking. It's crazy. We ain't had wind like this in a long time. I know Oh yeah. come, come morning, not every tree in the neighborhood is still going to be standing, I'll oh, tell you that much. Same here. Yeah, you know, Benny, uh, it's funny. We uh, Yesterday, we're, when we're recording this on a Tuesday, yesterday was the national championship. Obviously, uh, I know our guest is very excited about the outcome, but we'll get to uh, introducing him in a second. But, you know, you always say the men of many hats, and I, I couldn't help but laugh watching the game last night. One of the commentators made a comment. He said he called he's called something a hat on a hat, which is uh, I've heard many times in wrestling. And it got me thinking about not just the guests, but but you know the the your your comments on how people wear many hats. So a man of many hats, Benny, wants to tell everybody who we got on the line with us tonight. Yeah, so you know, as much as we love having legendary wrestlers on the show, we equally enjoy chatting with the uh, the talented writers who preserve and wonderfully present their memories. And no, I'm not uh, not Mr. Wonderful or uh, Lawrence Walk with the wonderful wonderful. You'd have to be able to get that that reference. But <laughs> so our guest has written several really really good. Excellent wrestling books, including ones on our former guests, uh, Steve Kern and Bugsy McGraw. And I'm absolutely delighted to introduce Ian Douglas. Ian, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, really appreciate you inviting me on the show. Well, we, appre- we appreciate having you. I know we got to to talk in, uh, before the show, and, and I couldn't help, like I said, uh, hearing about the hats last night. I know you, you're Michigan Michigan boy, uh, I know you were excited with the outcome of the game, so good, good on oh, you for uh, that one. Yeah, I'm born and raised in Michigan, went to the University of Michigan. It's always great to be a Michigan Wolverine, but that uh, that sentiment rings tenfold today in the aftermath of last night's game. Oh yeah, yeah. Like like I said, I wasn't the uh, I wasn't the biggest fan of Alabama getting in over FSU, but there's no doubt of the four that made it. The best team is the national champions this week so good. yeah well as, as good as i'm feeling uh, michigan it they could go winless for the next five years i will bask in the glow of this and nice it, 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 will, it will keep me warm on a uh, cold winter night <laughs> that actually does work because i'm a jets fan and i'm still basking in their uh their 1969 super bowl victory so you, you, you get some you get some mileage out of that <laughs> yeah, Joe Namath, that was a oh, big yeah, one. Broadway Joe. Guaranteed victory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you can see for those uh, those watching us online, you can see the uh, my my Redskins memorabilia in the background, and so yeah, you know, trust me, I'm I'm not too not too many years behind you, Benny, for for how it feels to bask in in the memories of what used to be. Right. But well, um, then mentioning the Redskins, then I mean they're 
they were they inflicted some trauma on me during my childhood because I'm also a Detroit Lions fan. Oh no! And yeah, and we had our we had our victory over the Dallas Cowboys. We were feeling pretty good about ourselves, and the Redskins rose up and snuffed that out immediately. Yeah, it's you know the good the the, the good times, and I'll tell you, there's been very few. I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm I'm grateful. Uh, for you for Michigan, but there has been very few things harder in the last 20, 30 years than being a Lions fan. So better man than I. Def- definitely long suffering. He definitely, definitely earned it. Well, uh, I, one of these days, you just got to assume that one of these days the chips are going to fall in the Lions' favor. And, you know, you, you don't want to be the fair weather fan who supported four or five or six other teams during the interim. And then all of a sudden you claim to have been a true fan. So right. you, you just have to, you just have to uh, work your way through the pain and one day, hopefully it'll all be worthwhile. Now I, I get it. And I mean, between you, me and, and Benny, we got the, the lions, the Redskins and the jets. So all, all three of us are long familiar with disappointment and, and what ifs. Yep. Oh, I uh, I feel no sympathy for Redskins fans. I mean, since I've been alive, I think they've won three. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no sympathy. No sympathy there. I would <laughs> I would trade every Detroit sports championship since, from since the time I've been born if they could win one Super Bowl, and that well, actually they, covers a lot of ground. I that, I have that, a good feeling though. This might be your year. Yeah, they they got it. Not. It's not. You don't think so, really? <laughs> no, 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 no. I think uh, let's let's get by let's get by our, the uh, the Rams and our old and our old franchise quarterback first, and then and then we'll talk about it. Well, you know, you got to. Uh, well, how's the saying go? You you can't. Oh, I'm trying to remember now. The old Joel Gibbsism. He used to say, uh, you know, can't 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 get to the dance without the first step or something like that. You know, you guys are in the playoffs, so you're a step closer to the championship than Washington or New York is. Yeah, that's, that's, an, that's an excellent point. That is, I'm, I guess I'm in a more privileged position uh, this coming weekend than you guys are. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's a rarity. Hey, I, I got to, uh, I mean, Loxley in, in Maryland, they won and they, they won their bowl game. So that's three, Three straight. That's the first time since I think the '90s that Maryland's won three straight bowl games, and certainly since I went there. So, although they did win it, they did win the Final Four national championship in basketball when I went to Maryland. So, yeah, I, I, get, I get that hurrah. Old. <laughs> yeah, was, um, I'm 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 still basking in the in the Wolverines uh, of NCAA course title of, eight, of '89 in basketball. Oh, oh yeah. yeah you, <laughs> You you've got yeah, you've but, got plenty of plenty of good memories ahead, but um, you know we want to get started. We asked everybody the same first question because, as Benny says, the answers are like snowflakes. Everyone's different. We get some of the crazy fun stories from people, so I'm going to start with that. Uh, when did the wrestling bug bite you as a fan? Like, do you remember the moment you you saw it and said, "I'm a fan of this. I love this stuff." I remember being intrigued by it right away. I mean, we're talking when I was probably five or six years old and there were rumblings following the first WrestleMania and people around me were talking about it and I was seeing the action figures. But even then I wasn't 
I wasn't following it. I wasn't catching it on television. And then suddenly I turned on the TV one day. I saw Macho Man Randy Savage, who was the, the intercontinental champion and still a heel at the time. And I thought he was the coolest, most interesting thing I'd ever seen in my he entire was. life. Mm-hmm. And and I became and I became a diehard Macho Man Randy Savage fan and pro wrestling fan on the spot. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you, a quick follow up. Do you, you remember the uh, uh, around that time? I guess um, did do you remember like when you did your first event you went to? Oh man, I well. <laughs> my parents were my parents were absolutely against me uh watching pro wrestling i, I think oh, okay. they thought okay he, he's going to he's going to absorb this content and he's going to become insanely violent you know i i don't <laughs> know I, honestly i, I, I I'm, I'm not being sarcastic here i honestly don't know why they ever would have thought someone with my temperament would have suddenly become this some maniac um, after watching pro wrestling, but uh, I had to, I had to sneak around and watch pro wrestling more or less behind their backs for, uh, five, six, seven years until they finally gave up and allowed me to watch it. So the first pro wrestling event I ever got to see live was in the Bahamas at Nassau stadium in 1989 because my uncles knew I was a professional wrestling fan. And so I showed up, um, we got off the plane. We went to my uncle, my, my uncle, George and my uncle David shared the same house on soldier road at the time. And they said, yeah, uh, uncle David said, yeah, um, we're going to go see wrestling. And my mom said, wrestling really? And uncle David said, yeah, I'm going to take him to go see dusty Rhodes." I had no idea who dusty Rhodes was. Um, and this was Dusty's first appearance in the Bahamas since 1983, and it would end up being his final appearance. Uh, it, it would end up being his final appearance in the Bahamas during his during his career. So I just happened to be visiting the Bahamas uh, during the week when uh, PWF had a show there, and Dusty was headlining the show. And that wound up being the first pro wrestling event that I ever attended last. Nice. That's cool. So Ian, same question, but with, with regard to writing, when did you realize you had a penchant for journalism? Oh man. Uh, when I wasn't particularly good at anything else. Um, <laughs> you know, when, when you're, um, when your grades in, when your grades in English and creative writing and writing and research intensive and, and AP English lit, when they're far better than your grades in, in any of your other subjects, that's usually a pretty good clue um, as to what sort of career path you might want to head down. But um, as far as as far as writing about wrestling specifically, um, it, it was around the time that I started the University of Michigan where I got my first, that was the first time I had consistent internet access and I'm able to look up things related to to wrestling and I started noticing some of the names of people attached attached to certain content like like Scott Teal who was writing things and Greg Oliver who was writing for Slam Wrestling and Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller who were doing these reviews and then I'm on um 
Death Valley Driver and I'm deathvalleydriver.com and I'm looking up um, match results and reviews that are written by Phil Schneider and Dean and, and some of the other guys who wrote there. So like that really intrigued me that you could, you could actually write about this and develop a following and you could actually follow an interest that you had in wrestling and generate content that people would be interested in reading and you could get feedback uh, from it. So that's, that's really what um, set me down the path of at least being interested in writing about wrestling, but it would still be quite a while before I'd ever actually be able to put that interest into practice. Well, uh, that was actually kind of going to be the the follow up was when you decided. Oh, I'm sorry. To, no, 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 sorry. no, 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 no. <laughs> apology for jumping the gun. I was going to ask you the follow up about when you decided you wanted to write about wrestling, which kind of transitioned into that. So, have you expanded that a little bit when uh, the opportunity arose to to start writing, or what was the first opportunity that arose to start writing about wrestling? Man, um, the first time I really. When I was at when I was at Northwestern University, um, we have a we have programs that air on um, Chicago cable every weekend, um, and also uh, local Evanston and and also local Evanston channels, um, and it and our sort of our final exam um, new news press. You want me to pick up where I left off? I have no idea what yeah. happened. Okay, no worries. Um, Oh yeah, our our final exam broadcast is called Medill Reports, and for mine, I wound up uh, tailing a local Chicago indie wrestler um, named Acid Jazz, uh, Jasmine Jones, who was um, wrestling for Windy City Pro Wrestling, uh, Sam Desero's promotion out there, and I'd I'd actually I'd actually covered them a little bit to the best you know the best I could get away with. Um, within the parameters of Northwestern's program. So I, I went to one of their events and I got to see AJ Styles and Abyss and Christopher Daniels because they brought in some people from TNA. So that was cool. And yeah, that's the first time I really got to, to explore writing and presenting any content related to pro wrestling. But aside from that, it wasn't until uh, several years later, I'd already met Kurt Angle because of some business ventures I'd been involved in in fitness. I'd already visited him at his house in just outside of Pittsburgh, and I got an oppor- I got opportunities to write for um, Movoto Real Estate, which had a blog that was doing a massive audience, and I got to interview Kurt for content for that, um, and then later on when I was writing some content for the West Michigan sports commission, I was able to interview Kurt again. And then I was able to interview diamond Dallas page. I was able to interview Taz. And then I was able to interview Dan Severn. And while I was interviewing Severn, I really only needed 20 minutes of content from him. And we wound up, he stayed on the phone with me for probably an hour and a half. And it, it occurred to me as I was recording with him, you know, if I can, um, if, if I could rope him into, you know, because he was just so profusive with 
um, with his words, um, if I could record with him 12, 13 more times like this, I, I would have had enough content for a book here. Um, because the transcription of an hour and a half worth of stuff, material was taking forever. And I said, man, I'm adding up these words. Um, 12 or 13 of these, we would probably have a book. So I filed that away. And Dan actually stayed in contact with me. And during one phone conversation we were having, he mentioned he'd be interested in putting a book together. And I immediately seized on that opportunity and said and told him, if you give, gave me an hour a day, for two weeks, we could probably have a, a book's worth of content. And that was, that was how we round up, wound up writing um, the, um, the Realist Guy in the Room, The Life and Times of Dan the B. Severn. Nice. Nice. You know, it probably take up, honestly, the story probably take up the rest of the show. But I was hoping you, because we, we talked, obviously, we touched on it when we talked about the game, your academic background at Michigan. But, you know, that wasn't where it stopped. And I was hoping you could expand on your academic background and your foyer into network television, both from behind the scenes and your on-air time. Oh, man, um, this will this will by no means take up the, the time of the rest of the show. It's actually a very brief story. Um, <laughs> I, I got, once I got into Northwestern's um, master's in journalism program, in, they, they put us, they put us on the air. They figured the best way to teach you is by having you actually do everything and learn all of the practical elements of, of television. So uh, during during third quarter, we spent the week putting materials together for a weekly news broadcast. And we were out there, we were out there conducting interviews, shooting video, editing stories, uh, working out of Medill's downtown news newsroom, which is in downtown Chicago inside of the loop. Um, just like real reporters, because Medill, at least at the time ran a real news service. And then, during the final quarter, they send us out to D.C. where we're, we're acting as Capitol Hill correspondents for actual uh, television stations, uh, NBC, ABC, Fox affiliates throughout the country. So by the time you're done with that program, you've had a solid six. You've been generating a solid six months worth of material. And when your audition tapes have the Chicago skyline in the background or you're inside of the Capitol Rotunda or you have the Capitol building and the White House in the background, you stand out. And even before I was finished with the program, I had job offers from three different stations, wound up working for NBC News in Flint as an on-air reporter and video editor. And honestly, I wasn't there for very long, it was five or six months before I had a job offer that was going to pay me um, significantly more. And it's not like I was suddenly a baller because I was not getting paid very much uh, to be a reporter. But um, I made I received a job offer making significantly more working for for uh, Michigan State government and wound up taking that job. So it was I had a very 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 brief stint in broadcast news. Um, is is the long and short of it. All righty. It really wasn't that long of a story. 
So, Ian, I, I read uh, Brute Power. I, I love that book. And, you know, Mike Davis, who we all know, well, the wrestling world knows is Bugsy McGraw, um, has appeared on our show a couple of times. And when he was wrestling, it was so much different than, you know, in the heyday of the territory days. And uh, both Dan and I have written for Pro Wrestling Stories, and we both think it's really important to, and we like we said earlier, preserve, present and preserve the memories and stories of these legends as far as how they traveled, how they made their living in it. I mean, obviously something that will never happen again. And you did such a great job pre- presenting these memories. W- what went through your mind when, when you know, when you were working with Bugsy uh, on the book and like when he was telling you about all this? Well, how did how did how did you feel? I, honestly, what what was going through my mind then, and what goes through my mind in a lot of these cases, is honestly just how privileged I am to be the first one to hear the majority of these stories. Um, when, when Bugsy or Steve or Brian Blair or, or Dan Severn or any of the guys that I've worked on books with, when they appear on, when, when they do podcasts or they appear on different shows, um, whether it's, whether they're on for a half an hour, an hour, hour and a half, whatever the case may be, it's you, they're usually running down almost like a, like a greatest hits of, of their career. And, and they're responding to the questions, which, which is fine. I mean, formats like this are great, but when you're able to extend it and say, like, we're going to take our time, we're going to go, we're going to have 20 hour long conversations. We're going to have 31 hour conversations. Um, then you, you hear so many stories and so many anecdotes that uh, frankly, 30, 40% of them may not even end up in the book, but you really get a three dimensional, um, portrait of what this person's life was like and what makes them tick. And honestly, by the time it's over with, you end up feeling like by the time the writing process is over with, you end up feeling like they're one of your best friends. And um, a lot, in a lot of cases, they end up feeling like you're one of their best friends. I've, I'm, I'm not going to name names, but I've had more than one wrestler remark to me during the process or after the process, like you know more about me and my background at this point than even my wife does. And I've been married to her for decades. And that's because they'll divulge things that they'll divulge things as they're rehashing their life story that things that quite frankly don't get brought up during dating conversations or um, after marriage is over and you shift your focus to having and rearing children, um, these things that don't get brought up during everyday life. And I mean, it's, and it's great that they feel that way, but the, but the point of them telling the story is so that it can, it can get into the book. And so then soon everyone will have access to it. So I, I, to answer your question in, in a nutshell, I feel privileged to receive the information first, but my responsibility is to be a conduit through which everybody who's interested in it ultimately gets to be the recipient of the information as well. Did you kind of feel like you were like when he was telling that, like the road stories, did you kind of find yourself maybe like in the car with him on these road trips? Oh yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, you feel like you're transported back to, right. You feel like you're transported back to Portland in the 1970s. So you feel like you're, tra- you're, you feel like you're transported to Australia. And he's talking about, uh, King Curtis, Iakea and Mark Lewin and what it was like, uh, sitting under the learning tree with them. Uh, you feel like you're with him in the car in Hawaii when he's pulling his rib on superstar Billy Graham. Um, yeah, absolutely. You feel like you feel like you're teleport. You feel like you're transported into a regional wrestling world that, frankly, no longer exists anymore. And so it's it's definitely um, a ve- it's definitely very immersive to um, be on be on the receiving end of these tales. And in in my case, I just hope that um formatting it and relaying the story properly so that everyone else can get the same sort of feeling from reading it that I received when I first heard it. Well, I can tell you as somebody who read the book that like when you talked about, you know, when you guys talked about the riots, I absolutely felt like I was behind that door with Bugsy trying to keep everybody out. If that answers your question. Well, that that's fantastic. It means that doesn't mean I did the, the job to the best of my ability, but that means I didn't completely ruin the story. So that's good. <laughs> no, it was great. I really felt like I was there at that moment. And, and then Bugsy told the stories on the show as well. And he just, you know, he just kind of reiterated. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you bought it and I'm glad you enjoyed it. And you very much. You talk about somebody that can tell a captivating story. Bugsy's got that, that, you know, sit on the floor listening to Grandpa tell war stories kind of tone where you just hang on every word, whether he wants you to or not. Oh, absolutely. And and a lot of these guys do. And it's and first of all, there's the fact that they were there and it's what they experienced firsthand. But a lot of these guys, you can you can hear their, their if you if you're watching them, you can see their eyes light up. If you're listening to them, you can you can feel the the emotion and the fondness in their voices for those memories. And yeah, they obviously they can't recall every experience from their wrestling careers because some of these guys have been in thousands and thousands of matches and you can't remember everything, but right. when they have those experiences that stick out in their mind, they remember it to like the microscopic detail. And those are the stories that are the most fun to listen to. And, frankly the most fun stories to um to include in the books and you you again um my role is to make sure that it that i can convey it to the reader with the same level of excitement and emotion and also make it as entertaining as possible without taking any liberties with it right um makes sense and and i like that you know it's it's we said it before on the show uh, we always try and be a little different and you can tell like we ask questions that some of the guests hadn't heard before or hadn't thought about in years. And there's a genuine excitement to like, oh, let me tell you about it. And, and they just it, it's always such a great feeling to to get that get that kind of story. Oh, yeah. The U.S. Bugsy with his you U.S. Bugsy about his match with Bruno San Martino at Madison Square Garden, and and he lights right up. There's there's no story he enjoys telling more than that one. <laughs> we actually had Davey O'Hannon on the show, and he actually told us that same story. So I mean, it's it, it's a great story. Yeah, yeah. So, 
if you want to read it, unfortunately, at the moment, Brute Power is out of print, so most people will have to track down a copy secondhand. Uh, I'll lend them my copy. they got to oh, give it back go. to me, though. <laughs> You're a good friend. <laughs> You know, Benny, when he was asking the question, he said, uh, obviously, wrestling was a lot different back then. Uh, on the flip side, what about the current product? Do you you follow the current product at all? And, and if so, what's your opinion of it? I have tried and it is difficult. And like, frankly, now that now that I'm a father, um, my my spare time is limited. And it's, it's also one of those things where I have to be very efficient with my spare time. Um, and in, in my case, that means if I have um, 30 minutes to spare, I'm usually working out. Or if I have, if if I've set aside three hours to watch Michigan play Ohio State, the entire time I'm watching the game, I'm usually trying to knock out an article for one of the publications that I'm writing for, um, because I just I just have to be efficient with my time. And unfortunately, that means that most modern pro wrestling content falls by the wayside. Gotcha. Now, as, and by the way, as far as as far as fandom of the modern product, um, man, I hate to sound like I hate to sound like an old man, but it it isn't the same. I don't know if that's I, I don't know if that's a consequence of the changes that have occurred within the industry, if that's a consequence of the changes to the content, or that's just, um, it's a consequence of just getting older. Um, I was convinced when I was seven years old that everything about pro wrestling was real. And even when people told me, no, this is clearly fake, I was like, no, it's real. And if it isn't real, I don't want to know that it isn't real. Um, but once, once you've been beaten over the head with the fakeness of it and they go out of their way to uh they go out of their way to present it as fake it it just becomes it becomes harder to enjoy in the same way if they take you out of the realism and uh unfortunately i think a lot of modern pro wrestling has has shied away from a realistic presentation and um yeah my my enjoyment of it has has suffered as a result of that. Sense. So, Ian, one of your great books is about a, another recent guest, Steve Kern, and that's entitled Kern Chronicles, Volume One: The Fabulous Wrestling Life of Steve Kern. So, I'm I'm currently reading a book about Whitey Bulger for a, uh, a which is a great book for a true crime podcast that I'm going to be doing. But uh, yours is going to be next after that, and um, about a couple about three or four four months ago, we had a, a really, another great writer, uh, Keith Elliott Greenberg, as our guest, and mm -hmm. he got into the discipline of writing a book. Now, I've been blessed enough to have 34 of my stories on the, uh, published on the Pro Wrestling Stories website, but I was curious, you know, you have done stories to many different websites and magazines, and I wanted to get your perspective as far as the discipline of, of writing a story versus writing a book. Oh, man. Um, pretty i mean it's pretty simple actually um when you're when when you're writing a story um you usually go in with a very a very tight very buttoned up idea of the the message that you want to present um the story that you want to tell 
and you're usually doing it over the span of 1,000 to 3,000 words. Right. So it's 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 usually just it's it's a in in my view that's just a that's a much simpler process than writing a book and and this is this is this is my opinion um so and and I don't want people to read too much into this because I'm I'm not criticizing I'm not criticizing any other writers or any other wrestling co-authors um but this is just my opinion that um you you have to work pretty hard to not make the book to, to not have a wrestler's book come across as just a collection of stories that are just thrown out there without any I mean, without context or without anything that's tying them together with any sort of cohesion like it's it's, it's very easy to just say I went here and here's what happened I went here and here's what happened and now my wrestling career is over and now I live here and that's it. Um, with, and I'll, I'll just give you some examples um, with, with Brian Blair's book. Um, as I'm, you know, we, we, the, the process of writing that book, we were speaking every, we were speaking every Tuesday and Thursday for several months. And just in, in have with, with no pressure, we didn't have a release date in mind. Um, we, we weren't shooting for any specific, um, end date. We just decided we're going to keep talking. And when we have the right amount of content for the book and to tell the story we want to tell, that's when we'll be done. And that's when we'll start working toward getting something published. So we took our time and over the course of, over the course of working on the book and record and recording content, I started to get a sense of what Brian's life was all about. And I could court, I could sort of encapsulate it and recite it back to him that here was a guy who was a, he moved from Gary, Indiana down to Tampa, Florida um, he grew up in poverty. He was the, um, he was the product of a broken home and his entire, his entire life direction was really about making sure that he made enough money and making sure that he put his children in a position where they wouldn't be the product of a broken home. And also that they would never, they, they would never Emerge, have to emerge from these same impoverished conditions that he came out of. So once you understand that, once you understand that and you get that theme, then you can better um, incorporate those themes into the various um, chapters of the book and also ask him like, Hey, this is what I'm picking up on. So, can you give me some more information about what, what you were thinking about when you married Mike McGurk back in 1980? Like, were you, were you, were you looking, was that you looking to settle down um, and like have some family stability of your own right then and there, even though you were still very young mm -hmm. and how did that play into how devastated you were when that, relationship didn't work out and now all of a sudden you have a divorce on your resume 
Um, so yeah, just so yes, that that's the Brian Blair book, and that was the sort of theme I picked up on there. And then in in Steve Kern's case, um, obviously you had him on, and if, and if you read the book, um, you're aware of the fact that his father was. Um, a prisoner of war, a high-profile prisoner of war, who was shot down um, in both World War II and at, at the very beginning of the Vietnam War. That's amazing. And yeah, and Steve had to deal with um, issues pertaining to um, losing his father during his formative years, um, knowing that he was still alive as a POW but not having access to him. And then Eddie Graham sort of took over that father figure role because Steve was best friends with Mike Graham um, very early in high school. And Eddie took Steve under his wing and helped to direct him into pro wrestling. And then he had a, he had a major, major falling out with both Eddie and Mike Graham. And it forced him to, to rethink um, his perception of a guy who he'd elevated above his own father and put the, and um, reframe his own father in the proper focus and give him the plaudits that he deserved. So in Steve Kern's book, we have sort of a theme of, um, of fatherhood, losing a father figure, and then reclaiming a rightful father figure later on. And also what the, the trauma of losing that sort of father figure, both the real father and the, um, the false father can, can, what, what sort of effect that can have on your life. So again, that's a, that was a very long winded way of saying, if I sit down to write a a story of one to 3000 words, then I usually have a solid idea in my mind of the theme that I'm going to um, attempt to convey. But when you're writing a book that's going to be 300, 400, 500 pages long, you, you have to pull a little more deeply and you really have to be paying attention in order to tie the entire the entire arc of the story together in a way that makes sense to the reader and hopefully add some some real cohesion to it nice so another book that you wrote ian is called bahamian rhapsody the unofficial history of pro wrestling's unofficial territory 1960 to 2020 so i'm curious as to why you wrote about this but i'm really glad you did uh, and I hope I got the guy, the guy's name right. I uh, I remember watching Championship Wrestling from Florida and a gentleman named Tyree Pride. And I remember, if I have the guy's name right, I remember Gordon Soley introducing him as the NWA Bahamas heavyweight champion. I looked at on ProWrestlingStories.com, or um, ProWrestlingData.com, I'm sorry. And uh, it looks like for the most part, he wrestled the Florida Loop. But he'd, you know, he'd wrestle in Nassau maybe once or twice a month. And um, but mm-hmm. I'd have to think that this is a place where any, you know, any territory wrestler would want to wrestle. So what, what made you write? A, what made you write this book? Oh, sure. Um, well, I'm half Bahamian. My mom's from the Bahamas. My wife is from the Bahamas. And the first wrestling show I ever attended in person was in the Bahamas. And I was I was blown away. I I'd come I'd come to 
a, a love and fondness and admiration for pro wrestling through the WWF national nationally syndicated product. Um, the Detroit wrestling territory had died, uh, years before I even knew what pro wrestling was. And so to, to really discover territorial wrestling through that visit to the Bahamas, I wanted to know everything there was to know about it. And there was, there was really limited information about the Bahamas. And of course, at that time, I mean, 1989, there's no internet. So in, in conversations with my uncles, um, one of whom was a longtime sports reporter for the Nassau Guardian newspaper, then later wound up being the editor in chief of the Nassau Guardian newspaper. I would hear like little anecdotes about um, wrestling in the Bahamas and how long uh, a wrestling had been presented there. Uh, but again, it wasn't until I got to college and got a working consistent internet signal that I started learning more and more and developing this, this interest and desire to know more about the wrestling that took place in my mother's homeland. And then finally, um, and again, I'd already written Dan Severn's book and I'd already made my contribution to, um, Hornswoggle's book. Um, this was, I mean, Hornswoggle's book on my end was done even before I started working on Bugsy McGraw's book and Bugsy's book was released almost a year earlier than Hornswoggle's, which gives you an idea of the timetable for getting something published sometimes through one of the major or semi-major publishers, as opposed to, as opposed to doing it yourself. Um, but anyway, um, I was, I was sitting down to work on a Bahamas pro wrestling book um, at the same time that I was sitting down to start on Bugsy McGraw's book, which is in, I think, February of 2018 is when I got started on both. And I was thinking, okay, um, and I'm sorry, this, this answer is going to take a while, guys, so please forgive me. No, um, go for it. Yeah. I, I, when I started thinking, okay, what does this book absolutely need to have? I need to somehow get access to all of the, to the, to the archives of the Nassau guardian and, or the Nassau tribune, um, because they had a lot of content that was published in those two local Bahamian newspapers. And then I need to get access to the wrestlers who were there and see if any, and, and see if any of them, will grant me interviews. And so um, I knew that I, mean, I was already working on Bugsy's book and Bugsy wrestled in the Bahamas over the course of several, several different decades. So that was a huge get. Um, and then uh, really it was just Bugsy passing me over to Steve Kern, who would pass me over to Brian Blair, who would pass me over to Rocky Johnson, uh, who would, passed me over to several different wrestlers and also doing plenty of outreach on my own. So when it was all said and done, I think I interviewed well over 40 uh, wrestlers, promoters, managers, and other people who had, had who had made appearances at a, in a pro wrestling program or been involved in some way in a pro wrestling program in the Bahamas um, between 1960 and 2020. And 
Um, in between the time I got started working on this book and the time it was published, um, I'd already put in work on uh, Bugsy McGraw's book, Brian Blair's book, and Steve Kern's book. Uh, so I wound up getting, and Hornswoggle's book was published um, in the midst of that too. So from the time I started working on it to the time it was published, four other books that I'd worked on um, wound up getting published. So wow. <laughs> it was a long time coming. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, we, we were talking about it before. And, and so we've kind of asked this question before, but it's worth asking again. Um, with the, the current, what's the way to word it? The WWE machine. Uh, the lifestyle of professional wrestler is very different than many of the wrestlers you've written about and many of the guests we've had on the show. I mean, the uh, the territory travel days are gone. Um, you know, we, you don't hear any more stories about four guys piled in a car driving a few hundred miles a day, you know, living off gas station food. And um, uh, what was it, Benny? You call them baloney blowouts and. You know, now you now you hear about backstage catering and plane fights and or plane fights, plane flights and and tour buses and and guys working. You know, uh, Roman Reigns is the champion, and he wrestled eleven matches last year. We 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 interviewed guys that had wrestled eleven matches before Thursday, right. and I, I mean, so I mean, so many stories we've heard dealt with the camaraderie that was developed from those road trips and from the territory system and the bonds and coming up and you spending literally hundreds of hours a month. I mean, most of your time, especially if you travel the road with the same people, you're with them 20 hours a day sometimes. Um, I mean, what would someone like you have to write about 20 years from now? What what kind of stories do you think from the current system would be ones people would want to hear? I can't imagine. Um, I can't imagine that they'll, they'll be half as interesting as the stuff that emerged from the territorial era in part, because a lot of what, if, if, if I'm working on a book with Steve Kern, he has, he has tons of stories that no one has ever heard before. Um, he is able to, I mean, there've been stories told about him uh, and they, they may have been released on shoot videos, shoot videos or, or different shoot interviews that um that, that that were released and it's an opportunity for him to set the record straight on some on some issues but most of it is content that that people haven't heard before and so they're gen they're they're getting it for the first time and they can be genuinely entertained by it because for the most part nothing is being rehashed as opposed to I mean 20 years from now you have wrestlers who are encouraged to to tweet daily and put their content out on Instagram, and you know every every thought they have or every drive through that they visit, they're posting photos of it, and so there's no mystery about what there's no mystery about what their lives are like, and. We also don't get stories about them jumping from territory to territory to indie to indie, and what those um, what those different experiences were like in each place. You know, we're, we're not going to get well. We're not going to get a Bugsy McGraw story about what it was like, um, about what it was like wrestling in Australia, 
or what it was like making a jump from there to working again in San Francisco and having to deal with Roy Shire or what it was like hopping to Vancouver and then going and going to the Maritimes, then heading to Mid-South and having to deal with the personalities of, of Bill Watts and, and the different promoters in each place and having to adapt to each different style and getting to getting to learn about the cultures of each region. I and mean, now that you have two, 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 three, if, depending on who else you want to include, uh, two to three major national promotions. So there really isn't such a thing as a, as a regional wrestling style anymore or a regional wrestling culture anymore. Um, and as I said, most of the mainstream wrestlers are, putting that posting their every thought to social media these days. So if, if a wrestler wants to tell, wants to suddenly, um, wants to suddenly write and release a 250 to 300 page autobiography in, in 20 years, I feel like I could get a better sense of who they are and what they did just by scrolling through their Twitter timeline. So yeah, I don't, I don't see the content 20 years from now being nearly as interesting or enticing as the stories that we get from wrestlers who emerged from the, from wrestling's regional era. Yeah. You, you don't think uh, 20 years from now, people are going to want to read up on something. I mean, just this Christmas, the, the Twitter spat between Chris Jericho and Stephen P new or, or the uh, uh, how many stories have had to be rewritten because someone broke kayfabe and posted pictures of, Hey, look, we're, we're at Disney world. It's like, wait, you guys are wrestling at the pay-per-view next week. Why are you on vacation together? You, you, you don't oh, think that that carries the same oomph as writing about like Sheik and, uh, you know, Sheik and Duggan getting caught together. I mean, let's, Let's just say it might have carried a little more oomph if they didn't each post 10 tweets about it. Um, and, I, and I wasn't following it live as it happened. Um, if, if I discovered it when one of them released when, if, if one of them was to release a book 10 years from now, and I, and I was able to say, "Oh, that's interesting. I wasn't aware that that was a thing that occurred." Um, fine, but since since they go out of their way to make sure everyone knows about every little spat that occurs. Um, no, that's not something that's going to entice me to um, plop down 15 to 25 or however much books are going to cost in, in 20 years. Um, no, that's, that's not going to uh, entice me to get my credit card out. <laughs> well, I, for one, anxiously await Ryback, the meat hook chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> So, Ian, well, besides being well, a co- – go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, well, that's another thing with, with, every, with every wrestler, wrestling personality having a podcast now. Um, I mean, you think about how much content they're putting out. Um, a, a, a Steve Kern book is the result, of, the result of about 30 hours worth of interviews and then however long the transcription, formatting, writing, and re-edits take. Um, but yeah, when wrestlers are putting out an hour, a one hour podcast every week for, you know, five years, they're generating 250 plus hours worth of content. 
um, over over that span. Um, so yeah, they're producing way more information on their own than you could ever squeeze into a book. I'm, I'm saying the modern wrestlers are putting out way more information on their own right. uh, via podcast that you could that you could ever squeeze into a book. So yeah, I don't see once once they do that, I don't see them saying, "Hey, I have a 250 page, I have a 250 300 page book." that I want to release now. Well, no, I've, you've been sharing every element of your life story and journey with us for the last five years. I don't feel the need to now pay money to get a, a brief summary of your life at this point. Yeah. Makes sense. That's fair. So Ian, I'm really interested in your athletic endeavors. You're uh, besides being a great writer, you're also, you're also, <laughs> you're also an accomplished swimmer in, a, in an indoor rower. And I got a kick out of your Amazon bio. It noted that you, uh, you rode the equivalent of a marathon and then you celebrated by spending the next six hours on the floor whining about it. That can't be true. Oh, it's true. It's true. <laughs> oh, um, it's true. It's damn true. So the, um, I mean, the, the swimming thing, when you say ath- athletic endeavors or accomplishments, you have to put several asterisks and, uh, and quotation marks around those words. Um, I was an okay swimmer in, in high school. Some might say above average. If I tried to swim in college, I probably would have been an, an average to slightly above average D3 swimmer. Um, I... May I stayed in in very good shape, and I got very I got married um, in my late thirties. So I, I preserved myself well enough that when I reemerged as a master swimmer in my early thirties, uh, my my times held up very well compared to what they were in high school, and I was able to beat a lot of former swimmers, including several D3 swimmers who'd been, who'd been sitting on the couch, uh, between the, between the ages of 20, between the ages of 20 and 30. Um, but no, you could get, there, there are levels to this. My wife is a former D1 swimmer. She's a multi-time all American in Northwestern. Wow. Um, she missed, she was, she swam for the Bahamas national team. She swam at world championships in 09. She missed the Olympics by a couple hundredths of a second in 08. And you know, I dragged her out of retirement to swim in a master's meet with me. She was not happy. Um, she wound up getting seated because they did 10 year age groups. She wound up getting seated with an active D2 swimmer and an active D3 swimmer. She had not practiced. Let's see, what year is this? This is 2017. Yeah, this is 2017. Uh, she had not been in a swim practice in six years. She swam the 50 free um, again against an active D2 and D3 swimmer. They all dive in, they do their underwater dolphin kicks. The two active NCAA swimmers pop up. She pops up a full body length and a half ahead of them, sprints to the end, qualifies for Masters World Championships by, I think, five seconds. And, wow. yeah, this, awesome. my, point in telling, my point in telling the story is that there are levels to this. And when you get someone who's a really good D1 athlete, um, 
they're just on a different talent level than I could ever hope to be. Um, so yeah, um, she was out of swimming for six years. She qualified for master's worlds by several seconds. I'd been swimming every day at that point for three or four years. I qualified for master's worlds by about three tenths of a second. So yeah, there, there are levels to this. Um, and as far as, as far as rowing the equi- the equivalent of a marathon, um, yeah, I hopped on the concept to rower. This is one of those things you can do when you're single and don't have kids um, and have nothing and, and have no other time commitments over the course of a day. I was able to go to a gym, hop on the concept to rower, um, spend about four consecutive hours on it with a lot of power aids sitting next to me, um, recorded the time. It was the fastest marathon row in the state of Michigan that year. And yeah, I spent the, uh, I spent the rest of the evening lying on the floor of the living room complaining. That's a true story. <laughs> well, Ian, as, as we get ready to wrap up, we, we talked a lot about career and, and Benny you know, brought up the, uh, the academic or excuse me, athletic endeavors. I kind of want to end on a personal note. Um, your social media is just filled with pictures of a, a pretty good-looking young kid. Um, kind of, you know, tell the uh, you, you, you tell the listeners a bit about your son. Oh, my my son's name is Isaiah Douglas. He was nice. born in April. He is he's I, I think he is objectively cute. I mean, I know I'm his dad and I'm going to be as biased about his appearance as, as anyone would be, but I think I have an objectively cute boy on my hand. No, he's a, he's a good looking kid. Yeah, he's he's a cutie. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um you were going to say that to me no matter what to be polite, but I appreciate it. No, he really um, is. He's a good looking kid. He he's a lot of fun. Um and I mean it it's it's cool that it's cool that I've been in a position where I've able to I've been able to make friends with so many prominent uh, current pro wrestlers and former pro wrestlers that you know I'm able to send photos of my son doing wrestling moves on his stuffed animals. I'm able to send those to to to, to Steve Kern and Mike Rotunda and and CM Punk and. They'll not only, uh, much like you did, they'll not only tell me that my son is cute, but they'll give me feedback on how he should be hooking the leg or gouging the eye or, yeah, or uh, cinch up on an anaconda he, vice. He's, he's, oh, already, yeah. he's already working on it. So I, I guess we got to ask it. It's 2020. We're recording this January 9th, 2024. So uh, about how many years before your, before your son wins his first championship? I mean, Clearly, he's destined for the business already. Man, the only championships I want him, the only championships I want him winning are in lacrosse. I've already, uh, <laughs> I've already earmarked him for being a lacrosse player. Um, okay. University, University of Maryland, in fact, I think hey, a, a great school best, for him. Best lacrosse program yeah. in the country. There you go. Yeah, I think, I think if he's a, I mean his. I'm six. I'm six one. His mom is five ten, and a and a former world class athlete. So, hopefully, if he Good gets genetics. to be, yeah, hopefully if he gets to be six two, six three, and I get him learning lacrosse early enough, that should be a that should be a nice easy scholarship, and should make some <laughs> of these uh should make some of these tuition payments a little easier. There you go. 
Well, any anything that involves uh, involves complimenting Maryland, the University of Maryland is good by me. So, uh, Benny, as we well, wrap up, well, uh, well, go ahead. Well, hold on. I I would I would say Northwestern because again, that's that's where I went to grad school. Oh, that's well, where my wife went to well, school. What was but, what was that, Ian? I think I think we're losing you. What'd you just say? I, I <laughs> breaking up there. <laughs> Well, I was just no, no, no. This is no threat to Maryland. I would say Northwestern, but um, Northwestern's lacrosse program is elite. Unfortunately, it's the women only. They don't have a men's program, so I think he's going to be stuck going to Maryland. That's fair. <laughs> well, ain't nobody stuck going to Maryland. Just, just ask, uh, <laughs> just, just ask Jim Henson and Boomer Esiason. So we, uh... there you go. But. As we wrap up, Ian, uh, thank you. This has been awesome. Like, I love the the in-depth story. Writers can tell such a unique perspective. Benny, as we wrap up, final thoughts to you? Yeah, I wanted to quote the, the one and only Dave Meltzer, who said, any Ian Douglas book is a good book. That's, I mean, that's high praise from somebody that everybody in the wrestling world knows. How does that make you feel? Uh, that made me feel phenomenal because when – when I was, uh, that's frankly, um, I'm going to get heat for this, but I don't care. Um, I mean, yeah, it, the compliment from Dave Meltzer about my books and my writing is a higher compliment than frankly, than any wrestler could give me about writing any wrestling books, because, you know, it's one thing to be inspired to be a wrestling fan. And it's another thing to be inspired to write about it. And Dave is one of the people um, who directly inspired me to write about it. Now, there are other people. I mean, um, I mentioned Scott Teal. I mentioned, um, dang, um, who else? Uh, Greg Oliver. Um, but Scott Teal and Greg Oliver, uh, they were among the first names. Um, but, but Dave Meltzer is the most prominent name. And, and he's been helpful to me. And I have... And I've had multiple conversations with Dave. I had no idea he thought that way and felt that way about my books until he put that in print. So considering he's one of the guys who guys who inspired me to write about wrestling books um, and provided me with that inspiration more than two decades ago, that was a that was a massive compliment. That was priceless. That's great stuff. Well, before we. uh again like i said th- thank you again so much for your time as we wrap up here um any any future projects on the horizon man um two and i will not mention the names of i will not mention the names of the books i will not mention the subjects that are being written about although in the case of one it's probably a pretty easy guess as to uh who it might be if you've been looking at the titles of some of my prior books, there's, there's a hint in there. Um, I'm, I'm just the person who I would rather put the book out, tell you the book is out and then say, go buy it. Um, that's not to say that, that that's not a criticism of other people um, who will say, Hey, I just started working on this book. Or, hey, I'm three months into it, six months to go. Hey, I'm shooting for this release date. Um, I don't want to put myself under that sort of pressure. And I also don't want people um, hitting me up all the time saying, Hey, uh, when is this coming out? Or when is, when is this next thing coming out? I'm really looking forward to it. Like I'm really happy that people are looking forward to it, but um, I don't, 
I, I just don't need the I just don't need the additional pressure. And if I'm if I'm mentioning um, things that I'm working on and when I'd like to have them out, um, I'm just I'm just inviting the pressure and in inviting um, yeah, in potentially uh, inviting unfortunate circumstances to befall me. And I would hate to give people a release date and then have to retract it. So whenever it's done, um, whenever it's done, you'll, uh, you'll see it. Um, you'll see that it's available for purchase on Amazon. Um, the first time you hear about it, you'll be able to go and purchase it on Amazon. You, you won't need any warning. Um, you can just go, you can hop right on there and buy it. Well, and it, won't be, it. it won't be right, right back to meet up Chronicles. Well, you never know. You never know. If, if Ryan wants to give me a call. No, 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 no. It will not be. It will not be Ryback to me to a chronicle. <laughs> we, look, we look forward to it. And like you said, um, Amazon, uh, truth be told, uh, B. Bar- Brian Blair, the current chronicles, uh, Bahamian Rhapsody, Life is uh, Short and So Am I, the book you, you coordinate with Hornswoggle over, and of course, The Realest Guy in the Room, The Life and Times of Dan the B. Severn, who yeah. has always been one of my favorites since the early days of UFC and wrestling. So uh, uh, again, I can't thank you enough. This has been awesome. We love these kind of interviews. Ian Douglas, anywhere books can be found. Uh Dan and Benny in the ring, of course, we can be heard anywhere. Podcasts can be listened to, and we'll be on YouTube, uh, our friends at Monty and the Pharaoh. So for Ian Douglas, the prolific writer for the player himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spaciano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time on the ring.